1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Susie Rack of The Guardian, Katie Wyatt of The Daily Telegraph, and Kieran Tavam of The Athletic. 2019 was a year of unprecedented growth and opportunity. So how can the women's game maintain its momentum in 2020? The World Cup had a total audience of 1.12 billion. So what numbers will the Olympics generate? The England team is in transition and club football is changing fast. Optimistic for the future, Susie?
2: Very. The exciting thing about a particularly domestic game in England is... Everyone is sort of, you know, whilst there are disagreements, everyone's sort of singing generally from the same hymn sheet a bit. You know, I think the first time you've got the FA, clubs and the international set up all kind of on the same trajectory, broadly speaking, and that's quite exciting. I think that's what sets the league apart from any of the other leagues internationally. And yeah, it, it kind of means that you're getting a collective agreement over the need to play a few big games in big stadiums and then drive the marketing down to the regular games and things as well. And I think that that's starting to pay off a bit, which is the
3: most exciting part for me.
1: If you had a wish list for 2020, Katie, mm. what would be on the top of
3: it? Gosh, that's very difficult. I think it's tough because there are so many things, as much as the game's in a lot healthier place than it has been in recent years, I think there are so many things that still need doing. I think the big one for me is... How can we get the big booms around one-off attendances and the big audiences that we see for games in main stadiums translated into audiences and people coming back week in week out? It's a difficult one. I think Chelsea have done it better than any of the other clubs. Had gates consistently of 3,000, 4,000, touching in on five thousand now. So it's kind of they were very open with. They've been sharing the data with Spurs, and they said before Spurs had the game at the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium of this is what we did when we had ours at Stamford Bridge, and kind of that osmosis of intelligence and resources and, and sharing Sharing the ideas and their methods and things like that and this kind of collective knowledge as Susie was saying of what's best for the game now so I think for me that's the big one of seeing maybe more teams than just Chelsea than just see, than just Arsenal starting to really sustain their attendances and grow their fan bases more consistently next year
1: mm. What about the, the macro level if you like Kieran you know, you've worked at, at FIFA there seems to be a strategic commitment there to the women's game mm. what impact will that have in 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 the years to come do you think
4: i think it will make the game more global i think we're seeing the the fa women's super league is now more accessible than it ever has been this year we've seen broadcast agreements in in scandinavia in australia obviously optus sports have come on board and and a few others as well and i think what that will do is it makes it more accessible doesn't it It makes it more visible and i think that's what we're trying to trying to get we want you know, when you see players like Sam Kerr join the league, what's the point in having one of the world's best players in the league if nobody can see her? So I think strategically one of the things that everyone is trying to do is is trying to get more people watching our game. The Women's Super League is now one of the most, if not... The most desirable leagues to to be in. So we want people to be able to access it. We want people to be able to see it. We want people going through the gates, as as Susie and Katie have both said. But for those that are maybe a little bit further afield, we need them to be able to have access to it as well. And and from now on and through to 2020, there's never going to be a better time for people to see it.
1: Yeah, huge exposure for Olympic Games across the sports. For women's football, it has a unique selling point, doesn't it? That Are we in a stage where Team GB could actually take advantage of that chance to impress?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think 2012 was such a massive turning point for women's football in England and for the England team as much as it was Team GB competing in that tournament. Obviously, you've got difficulty of it being in Japan, time difference, that kind of thing. But I think it's quite important that we have a big tournament in between now and the 2021 home uh, home euros to kind of keep that momentum going I think it's it's well timed from that point of view and also a real chance to condense the squad a little bit and decide who the best players are and whether any of the others get break into it that's for me the exciting part of it. Mm.
1: Who who would you see as making a a case to be selected you know from maybe outside the the Current group, are there any really sort of you know what what they call in sport bolters basically? You mm. get in late.
3: I'm not sure there's <clears throat> much of a case for players being made getting in late. I mean, I mm. think there's a few of the Man United squad that are kind of at the younger end. Or Leah Goldner, as we know, has had certain circumstances as to why she's not been in the England team. And I think you'd sort of be looking at some of them and thinking maybe in the next two or three years, are they going to make a case of being in the Euros? I think the bigger thing for the team GB squad is more which players from Scotland we're mm. going to see because I think there are five or six Claire, Claire Emsley, Caroline Weir, Erin Cuthbert, Lisa Kim Evans, little. Kim Little. The, yeah. Who you are sort of thinking how he's going to narrow those down from on top of the England players that he's already got that are very good in those positions is a very difficult decision for him. So I think there are a few because it's only 18, is it? Mm. 18, so it's even less than you can take for a World Cup when you're just deciding on one nation. I think there are a few Scotland players that if they don't make the cup probably deserve to feel a little bit aggrieved. Mm. But at the same time, you get some people, and I don't agree with but you get some people arguing that
2: it's England that have qualified Mm. so it's the England players that should make up the bulk of the squad I I don't think so you can't can't have a quota
4: system though can you no I don't think so and and Lucy Bronze was asked the question at uh, at BBC Sports Personality Mm. of the Year about the Olympics and she said that you know she's really excited about it because you now she she said we go in as one of the favourites as Mm. Team GB because we have that capability and that opportunity to bring the likes of Kim Little in from Scotland and I think that's that's going to make us stronger. I, I want to see the strongest team. I know it was England that, that got us into the Olympics. I know it was their performances at the World Cup, but we need those best. We need the best possible players. We saw in 2012, Hope Powell went with a very England heavy squad. There were two players, Ifeoma DAK and Kim Little, that were the two that, that were the non English players. And, and England, you know, they, or Team GB, sorry, got, got eliminated by Canada a lot earlier than they should have been. Get the best players over there. And Kim Little is one of those. Caroline Weir has been superb Cuthbert you know Katie mentioned them I want I want Team GB to have the best possible opportunity of winning a gold medal and you have to bring those players in if she can make a late case Jess Fishlock Welsh International mm. as well recovering from a serious injury but Jess on her day is as good as anyone she should have gone to 2012 it was a travesty mm. that she didn't if she can get fit she should be in the to- the conversations as well yeah. why not
2: take advantage of those relationships that players have at club level as well yeah. you know mm. Jordan Nobbs and Kim Little yeah. Caroline Weir and Jill Scott Sophie, in- Sophie Ingalls another one that we so yeah, I mean, there's just so
1: many. Yeah. Is there any chance, Katie, that the, the men in suits could get in the way?
3: How do you...
1: Well, in terms of, like, the, the politics of the home nations oh, yeah. and, you know, uh, the the fact that, you know, historically there's been a degree of resistance to Scotland players playing... In a, in a broader Team GB?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because I was reading about this this morning that Scotland have kind of said to their players, you know, we're not going to stand in your way and do it. And it was mm. Wales, there was a column from one of the Wales players for, for one of the Welsh newspapers that was sort of saying that we want the Welsh players to think very hard about what this will mean if you stand in a Team GB squad at a time when the situation of Brexit, the situation in Downing Street has put the set of the home nations and the way they're configured and the way that they relate to the EU in a very precarious position. So I think that's probably down to, and it was saying that we're not going to stand in your way, but you need to understand as a Welsh person, as a Welsh citizen, as well as a Welsh player, what that decision of you stand to playing a team GB squad's going to mean. And it had a line, I can't remember who wrote this piece, but it was saying that... Is sport for the people or is sport for a team that are going to go out and be successful kind of thing? So I think that there is a wariness from people kind of in the middle of that debate where they're very clued up on what that would mean politically, potentially, if they stood.
1: But surely, Kieran, it's about players. Players want to play at the highest level and the Olympics
4: is the greatest stage of all yeah i totally agree can you imagine a player having to say that they've withdrawn themselves from from consideration for being selected because of a political stance of a government or an individual i don't think that's right these players have had to wait for their opportunity many of them have never you know had the opportunity to play in olympics we've only had a select few that were at 2012 in london if you speak to someone like casey stoney uh, what it meant to her to lead out team gb at wembley in front of 70,000 people can you imagine if she'd had to say i'm really sorry i can't represent my country because of political stance I, I don't agree with that a lot of these players have had to wait for this opportunity the olympics is a lot bigger on on the women's side in the men's game obviously it's uh i think it's under 23 representation with a few overage players the women's game doesn't have those restrictions we have senior internationals this is only second to the world cup uh, so for me you have to have the opportunity to go there and and i wouldn't like to see politics get in the way of of a player having their dream taken away from them Mm. Phil Neville as a coach, has he
1: finally told the uh, doubters to move into that quiet little corner?
2: I don't think the doubters will ever move into that quiet little corner. He's still got a lot to prove. I don't think he's done anything personally, dramatically wrong. We've had a bad run of friendlies. There's been some poor performances in there. But until we kind of see them mess up on a big stage, I think. It, he's the, the door has got to be like a bit open to being able to do something. Um, yeah, it's it's I think he's changed tact a little bit, which has helped. So he's sort of switched from seeing the media and, uh, and kind of criticism as the enemy and the thing he should be fighting to realising that actually we're we sort of Want the same thing ultimately, mm. which has helped relations a little bit particularly with with us journalists, but that doesn't forgive the very very long get run without a without a win, and then the wins they did get Portugal and Czech Republic being not great wins and quite scrappy, she believes it's going to be such a massive test, but the problem is is have a bad tournament that she believes and there's not really a scope to change the manager because it's such a sort of short space between that and the Olympics. So the FA have, you know, over this kind of Christmas period since those friendlies have decided to clearly to stick with him. And now we sort of all live and die
3: on that decision.
1: Mm. England are the sixth in the world rankings. Is that about right,
3: Katie? I think so, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this morning that they've probably, you know, upon reflection, that fourth... Place result. They were very open at the time that that wasn't what they wanted. And when you look back on it, the most heavily funded women's team in Europe should have done better than fourth place playoff. When it's difficult because that USA game, you do look at that and you think there's nothing more that they could have done. And at the end of the day, they played very well, but were beaten by a team that were just two, three, four steps ahead of them and in a different place on their journey, which you can understand. But it's difficult because it's like the end of the season. As Susie was saying, with the the friendlies that they've had, have underperformed, and there are no secrets that they have underperformed. They will admit that that their World Cup dip has just been beyond what anybody could have. Expected, so I wouldn't say that they've gone backwards, I think that's a little bit overly simplistic. I think there are considerations around mm-hmm. playing style and things like that that we have to take into account before we make a statement like that. But at the same time, I think they probably won't be happy with their World Cup finish and how they finished the calendar year.
1: Driving as a, a team in transition is that about right?
3: Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think. We've sort of looked at them at times this season and at times watching them and apart from maybe a few games under Neville, you've sort of sometimes looked at them and thought, I'm not really sure what they're trying to do here. And he has been very clear in his vision of his head in that he wants them to be a team that's quick in transition, that move the ball well, that that are on the front foot, that press teams, that kind of dictate the tempo and the pace of the game against other teams. And I think that's very admirable and we can see the makings of that, but that's going to be something that I think they've got to fine-tune. I'm not sure that they're quite there yet.
4: Well they brought Don Scott in isn't it? Mm-hmm. you know they've they've hired one of the United States biggest pieces in terms of off the field the high performance coach that was with the u s from what twenty ten through to twenty nineteen worked at the FA before she went over to the u s the best in the world at what she does she will have those players absolutely ready every time they take to the field in terms of fitness nutrition, sleep patterns, everything you know she is she was. As Christy Pearce, the former US captain, described her as the secret of everything with the United States, and now Phil Neville has been able to hire her to his staff. He's going to have no excuses, if we're being honest. The The next year, year and a half, as Katie said, he said pretty much from the off after the World Cup. I'm looking at 2021. What happens now isn't really that important. It's Mm. what happens when we host our home Euros. Of course, he wants to do well at the Olympics, but that's going to be a little bit different because there's the other players from other countries to factor in, smaller squad. But what he wants for this England team is to be absolutely at their peak by 2021. Um, And having someone like Dawn Scott on board will certainly help him get to that. Mm.
1: If we're looking at totemic figures within that England squad, and one assumes that the Olympic squad as well, Steph Houghton. There's been a lot of very strange comment about her comment about, well, I don't actually watch too much women's football. Now, frankly, I just thought, well, fine. You know, I know male footballers who don't watch the Premier League. What did that little controversy say about not just her, but the the state of the
4: women's game? I wrote a column on this for the Athletic and my stance was quite different to some other people's it definitely got a mixed reaction there were some people who kind of said look I don't really care if she watches a lot of women's football others have said that as the England captain you have a responsibility not just to perform on the field but to promote the game off of it it was I think I described in my column as a little bit clumsy I think Mm -hmm. she's got comfortable in an interview with Jamie Carragher Mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident that if it was any one of us three in a mixed zone or in an interview environment that she wouldn't have said the same thing. I think he's asked her a question, which I will be honest, I think was probably a little bit unfair don't think it really matters whether she chooses to watch men's or women's football look she of course she has a responsibility to promote the game but as I wrote in my piece she doesn't these players don't have to be perfect 100% of the time they are going to say things occasionally that people don't like and it's not important if Steph Horton is watching Pernilla Harder and Eva Payor for Wolfsburg and whether she can name their their strike force the important thing is is that she knows how to mark them when she plays them of course she's watching women's football she's studying the teams that she's coming up against she's looking at players that she has to potentially mark in a, in a match it doesn't matter if she's switching on the fa women's super league player at the weekend because ultimately she's playing herself she probably doesn't get an awful lot of opportunity to watch women's football because she's playing at the same time as games are being broadcast yeah. she's a brilliant ambassador for the game isn't she
2: yeah and i think it's important to remember as well that when she was growing up it, she would have been watching men's football that's what she would have been invested in and like built a relationship with and that would have been the the She does to relax with friends and family. So then to dismiss her for saying that she's, you know, she still does that and and doesn't relax and watch a women's game in the same way. I think is a little bit unfair. also, I mean, she said I don't watch a lot of women's football. I bet she actually does. I mean, Kira mentioned she will have, she will be watching footage. You know, they do a lot of preparation. Well, Manchester City are they, the, uh, the, you know, city the embodiment they of the, yeah.
1: the performance culture, aren't
2: they? Exactly, they study footage like no tomorrow, and she she will be doing that for every single game. And I think that yeah, it wasn't necessarily the the most sensible thing to say given her position as England captain but I mean, I think given the year she's had particularly in her personal life that you know the the fact that not everyone wants to take their their work home with them that it was the phrase a lot of women's football I don't watch a lot of women's football. what what does that even mean I just I thought it was a, just exaggerated the criticism was very exaggerated ill-advised for her to say it but for someone who I mean she's she's comes across uh, when, when we speak to her as quite media-trained and for someone who has clearly like let down the barrier a little bit and relaxed, I don't want to see her put the barrier back up again no. uh, when she's well, next speaking to isn't us. Isn't that the
1: wider point, Katie, that you know, an interviewer like yourself mm. working in the women's game, part of the USP of women's football, it seems to me, is that emotional engagement you can get in the interviews mm. with players who perhaps aren't the sort of media-trained robots that we get in the Premier League.
3: Hmm. Yeah I mean it's such a difficult one because I mean with the Steph thing I think there are a few issues at work I think ultimately one I'm not really bothered if she goes home and watching the same with I know a lot of men's journalists who say to me and I've had this conversation with them that uh, they start the season they're like right I'm going to watch every match of the day every goals on Sunday every whatever and then it comes to week three and they've got back from eight hours at a game and they're like nah and everyone reaches a saturation point so I understand why she doesn't watch it I think. The words that Susie have been using, like ill-advised, I think, or clumsy are closer to the mark. I think for the England captain to go on as a representative and use terms are just quite problematic and draw it in particular into a contrast with men's football. I like the pace, I like the intensity of men's football. My night revolves around watching it, and but I don't break my neck to watch women's football. I understand why it's very difficult for people to stomach, and I get that. And I think it's not about necessarily media training them to be robots because none of us want to see that, but I think with something like that, I think there's a balance between being honest and then being nuanced in your opinion so maybe she could have said I don't watch women's football and the phrase that she used was break my neck to watch it which I think is an interesting turn of phrase because you have to break your neck to watch women's football like, if you're looking for a stream for the women's champions league you're there for a lot of hours looking for a stream and that so, needs to have
1: the degree dig- in exactly technology yeah. As well, and it?
3: you need, yeah. yeah it's ridiculous what you have to do to watch women's champions league and fans that are travelling to different cities to watch the club that allegedly plays in their hometown kind of thing so she should have maybe said that I don't don't watch it necessarily because these are the barriers that are in place or because I like this mental separation that I need kind of thing. So if she'd have put it in... I think slightly different terms or in a different context, you would have had that personal insight into, because I know that the Man City players are always getting clips on their phones and when they go for coffee and you think they're playing on their phones, that's what they're all doing, watching the games back. So maybe she, if she'd have put it into a context a little bit more like that, she would have been able to be honest at the same time without well, promoting the women's game in the way that we needed her to as England captain.
1: Mm. What well, about the broader point, Kieran, about the nature of the sort of interaction between you know, guys like yourself and the players. It seems that the female players are much more open and almost emotionally intelligent in, in interviews. Is
4: yeah, there? I'd agree with that. I've, I've had the privilege of working in, in both. Ten years ago when I started out as a journalist, I used to cover Watford Football Club, I used to go up to London Colney and speak to players, and I'm not going to you know individually pick anyone out, but some of them clearly didn't want to be there, didn't want to talk to me, and, and, and one or two... You know some of them maybe didn't uh, weren't the most educated, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way kid you know men men's players are picked up at nine ten years old stuck in an academy, and that is all they're focused on whereas you know a lot of these players that we're dealing with have 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 come through some of them have come through university especially if you speak to the players in the United States the vast majority of them have come through the college system so they all have a degree they all they're all well educated it is different and and as you say emotional intelligence as well I feel that players are a lot more open they're willing to if they trust you and, and they know that you have a knowledge I think that's the important thing and that's the advice I always give to anyone that says to me about what do you do to try and get into women's football journalism is build your knowledge because players appreciate it because they have to answer so many mundane questions where they're dealing with journalists occasionally who don't know the game who've probably been sent by their editors because someone else is off sick or maybe isn't available they want to know that you have done your research and that you know about them so actually it's a pleasure to deal with them i've been doing it for 10 years and and very rarely do i come up against one where i come away thinking god that was terrible Mm. so yeah you're right it's very different
1: are there any lessons that the women's game can draw from the men's game, Susie? And I'm thinking more particularly here about the growing elitism, or there are just hints of elitism now in the WSL. You know, pretty much the top three are the top three. Maybe Manchester United coming in to make number four. What about that? Are we seeing that sort of degree of separation now between the clubs who are well funded, strategically supported, and the rest?
2: Yeah definitely the fact that Liverpool are languishing towards the bottom of the table despite having a men's team that are doing so incredibly well at the moment is down to funding. The women's team don't get the same level of funding as the women's teams at Chelsea or Arsenal or Man City do. It's hugely influential. The reason Bristol City are struggling is because again I mean there there are obviously footballing reasons behind a team not doing well as well but it all stems from a lack of support and it is a problem that there is a gap growing because no, no one's helped
1: by an 11-1 mismatch are they
2: no and one of the kind of i think things that keeps the american nwsl in, in in step with the with the women's super league given that the women's super league is kind of getting so much backing and sponsorship and things like that is the fact that it has a draft system that that kind of equalizes things a little bit which we don't have here we don't have a system that forces clubs to uh to to kind of share resources a bit i'd like to see a, like a a league that kind of collaborates and uh you know when we do get the tv rights deals renegotiated in next year in 2020 that um that we do see a kind of sh- like a plan to try and close that gap up a little bit and to he- but then again you want to see Clubs that are invested rewarded for their investment, so that's the hard part. But you don't want to end up like France, where you've got Leon, who are just so miles ahead of everyone else. Mm. But you don't want them to be mm. uh, attacked for having done what they've done.
1: Yeah, but if you look at you Catch Twenty Two, it is to a degree. But you look at, so let's say, take, take Chelsea as an example, Katie. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned Kieran Sam Kerr coming here. Can you give the uninitiated, if you like? an idea of how important that signing could be for not just Chelsea, because you can see why there's a long-term plan there, but just for the game as a whole?
3: Um, I think it's difficult to kind of um, overstate how much of an impact she will have in the WSL it's kind of like the Ronaldo or Messi coming to the Premier League in terms of just how the, her pedigree and her skill on the ball and what she's going to do to that league to have a player like her choosing Chelsea and choosing the WSL over she have a pick of clubs and countries to go to and saying that this is the club and this is the league that's going to serve me well at this point in my career and this is the club that I want to win competitions with it's a huge, huge statement and reflects really well on the, the club and the league and then to widen that out to Chelsea and what she's going to do for them, that they've been very known that they're kind of chasing Leon now, who have won the Champions League so many times and and who obviously knocked them out of the, the semi-finals last, last season. And and I think signing a player like her specifically and voicing that they want to topple Leon and to be up there winning Champions Leagues is a huge thing at a time when we're seeing the number of Champions Leagues faces broadened so potentially more for English clubs as well, starting to see them exert their dominance in Europe more consistently.
1: Mm. You can always rely on Emma Hayes to say what she feels can I just read you a quote that I, I picked up this morning this was quoted by Catherine Batt but I think there were pretty standard quotes around the place uh, talking of the, the game at Liverpool or at Tranmere the 1-1 draw with Liverpool this pitch shouldn't be part of our league we deserve better standards and I think for Liverpool Football Club champions of Europe they should provide their women's team with significantly more than they're doing I know she subsequently apologised Has she got anything to apologise for?
4: No. Not really, no, for me to be honest. Emma's one of those where she knows her audience and she knows when quotes will get picked up on. So she wanted that reported, no doubt about that. I know she's apologised, probably on reflection she thinks it was maybe a little bit too forward. Or maybe she's maybe thought that I'm using it as an excuse because obviously we drew the the game against a, a Liverpool team that are struggling. But Emma is like a lot of people in that She's seen what's going on at her own club and actually she wants other teams to follow suit. You know, Chelsea are the team that are setting the bar in terms of crowds and and in terms of signing someone like Sam Kerr. Of course, we see Arsenal top of the league and defending champions and the players that they've got. There are clubs that, that are going above and beyond. But there are some clubs, and, and I don't mind saying it, Liverpool are, are not supporting their women's team as much as they should be. One of the reasons that they struggle for attendances is because they play in Tranmere. They're not playing where their catchment area is or their large catchment area is. You know the, the fact, and I've said it before in articles and on podcasts, that to have a team that were back-to-back league champions only five years ago and now to be struggling near the foot of the table, how's that happened? And the only reason it can have happened is because they are not in a position where they want to compete with the likes of Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, even Man United. Man United have only just come up and they're miles ahead of Liverpool at the moment. That's the club letting that happen. That's not giving Vicky Jepsen the support and the resource that she needs to be able to make that team competitive. They should be up there. If you've won back-to-back titles, if you've had a taste of Champions League football, you should want that every single year. Uh, and unfortunately, they, they clearly don't because they're not giving the support that she needs to be able to compete with those top teams. Mm. So I don't actually think Emma's got anything to apologise for.
2: She's very open about uh, what she wants her legacy to be as well. You know, Emma doesn't just want her legacy to be a fantastically brilliant Chelsea team and a perfect set-up at Chelsea. She wants to have influenced the game for the better as a whole. You know, that's what she wants to be able to look back on. She wants, to, and, and it's that kind of thing, you know, having someone... You know, at the top level of the game, saying things like that is is a driver. It's it's the challenge, isn't it? It's putting the spotlight on a club reluctant to invest, and I think that's like, you know, Vicky Jepps is probably sitting at home thanking her for it. To be honest, um, you know, she needs all the help she can get in in pushing the club to to give her more. And if you get someone like Emma saying it, that's going to help her case. So, yeah, I mean, the pitch was terrible as well. I don't know if you saw the pictures of Aaron Cuff, but literally. Head to toe in mud, like dripping, wringing her shirt out and her shorts out because she's just literally covered in in mud. I don't know how they played in it, to be honest. I was at the the, um, the Everton games, I didn't see the game, but I just don't, I don't know how they even played that game on that pitch.
1: Mm. Yeah, you were at that Everton game as well, weren't you, Katie? Yeah. Give me a, a read on Arsenal at the moment. They they seem to be putting up a, a very good defence.
3: Yeah, I mean it's kind of business as usual continuing on from last season very much just to briefly go back to what Kieran said about Liverpool playing at Tranmere is that when you think about it as I had this conversation with them that despite Liverpool being a massive city and a massive football city there are not that many places that are kind of suitable for them to Mm. play and train so they obviously can't play Anfield because they just wouldn't fill it out but at the same time they're kind of rattling around in in Prenton Park which is feels too big for them when you go but apart from Southport there are not that many which Everton have got places where they can actually play so that's sort of a separate issue just to kind of go back to something that Kane was saying but on to I don't think you could really have asked for anything more from them um, in terms of a title defence, but it was sort of at the same time you look at them and you just think the whole pitch from, from A to B is they're just the most well-oiled machine and well-drilled machine and well-coached machine with player Viv- in Miedema who is just getting more complete and more, and just a better forward every time you watch 53
1: goals in 2019, and that's just, ridiculous. And
3: you just sort of look at her, with, she sort of lops around and it all just seems very easy for her and you just think... I mean, you, I mean, when you're watching Lucy Bronze in that Norway game where she ran it from start to finish, and you just think it must be such a joy as a footballer and to play with a footballer who is that in control and that complete and that close to perfection every single week, and this league must be so easy for her. I know that she would sort of deny that, but you do look at her and you think like that Bristol City game, the double hat trick and was it f- hat trick and four assists or something? Yeah. First and you just you just think it's it's so easy for her. It's unbelievable. Damn. I love that you know that Norway game. Lucy
2: looked. Was immense, but she was busting her gut. Whereas Viv just looks completely relaxed mm. the whole time and mm. just kind of. Well, that's a yeah, like sign I'm of saying, a great
1: player in any just sport, just, isn't
2: it? Just swans around, like very, very chilled. It's great to watch.
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: Do you think she should have won the Ballon d'Or? <laughs> <laughs> That is a really difficult question. I've said publicly and on the record, I think it should have gone to Sam Kerr. I've watched a lot of both this year. I'm in a very privileged position where the NWSL is very accessible and very visible. been to a lot of Arsenal games because I live locally. It's not a lot between them, I will say that. Very different players as well, though. Glenn Moore and other women's football journalists and myself were talking about the... the male equivalent of someone like Viv who would it be and I think the, the player we both came up with was Harry Kane just very intelligent you know can drop into the 10 links up well with the wide players but as as Susie and Katie have said it's it's so easy for her she's just a very cool customer Sam Kerr is a completely different player she will run all over the place she goes to the channel she's a little bit more kind of she's used to more of a transitional game whereas Arsenal are very possession based they will you know it's more patient build up they will use Viv ball into feet or kind of balls out wide and crosses into the box, whereas Sam is more of a ball over the top type player and running behind into the space. So, look, there's not a lot between them. Uh, I'm sticking to my guns and saying Sam Kerr should have won it, but I would have had absolutely no issue if if Viv had come out on top as well, they're both phenomenal strikers. And a bit like it's the conversation, I say a little bit quietly, but there's kind of comparisons now to the Ronaldo v Messi debate in terms of Miedema and, and Kerr, and it shows how much they've developed because they're both, they're both phenomenal.
1: Yeah.
2: And still so young, both of them yeah. as
4: well.
1: Mm. Of course, it was won by Megan Raffinow. You, know, you were with her in, in New York last week. Not expecting you to give away you know, the, 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 the nuts and bolts of the interview that you did, Just want to try and get a sense of her as a person. How'd she come across?
2: She's wonderful. Um, She's. We. I mean, we sat down. I had an hour and a half with her over breakfast, and she's this kind of air of arrogance that sort of exudes from her on the pitch and has kind of infiltrated public perception of her. Just doesn't exist. Uh, She's really, really relaxed, really chill, really down to earth, quite humble. You know, she is the first person. Say she said it in other interviews. She also said it to me. It's great to win individual awards. You know, it's really nice to to be considered for them. But she doesn't care about them. They give her a, a platform that she wouldn't have otherwise, which is useful. And she doesn't think she's the best player on her team, let alone in the world. So, you know, she's the like, yeah. This kind of perception of her as an arrogant player is is just like very very far removed from from her as a person. And she, yet yeah, she sits down with you like she's having a chat round dinner with a mate and yeah, kind of just enjoys uh, discussing and debating politics and football and uh, you know, and Trump and whatever it may be and there's just a very, very kind of authentic honesty about her. Yeah, it's yeah, she's really really good. Kieran's met her a lot over the years. I've interviewed her before but never one-on-one, face-to-face done over the phone or, you know, mix zones and things like that but She's just just really, really enjoyable to sit down and have a conversation with.
1: How important do you think she is to the game as a whole globally, Katie? In terms of one, the message that she can uh, promote, mm. but two, the you know we talk about role models in sport a lot, but almost the inspirational quality she she could have for you know just the ordinary girl on the street.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's huge because we there's a lot of debate about did she deserve to win the Ballon d'Or given she only played in so many games, she didn't have the the. Domestic season, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and I understand that to a certain extent, but at the end of the day, you're looking at a player that has done what I don't think many players have ever done in, in football. Or, like, the last one that I can think of is probably like the Brazilian Ronaldo at France 98 and just made a tournament from the first day to the last day every single thing about that tournament about her and just kind of completely owned the spotlight and controlled the spotlight while let's not forget having a feud with the most powerful man on the planet and not seeming that bothered about it and it not sort of affecting her performance or her team performance in any way and then using Every single thing, every single press conference to broaden the debate, to voting rights, to prisoners' rights, to equal pay, to gay rights, to just whatever she wanted to add to the discourse at that point. So I think that she's such an important player because there is so few people on the planet and so through athletes that could have done what she has done in terms of owning a stage for an entire month and making the whole conversation and shifting it in whatever direction she wanted while performing at a level and winning individual accolades at that tournament that You know, any other player would have been happy to do either of those things, but to do them both, I think, is a phenomenal thing.
1: Mm. Lucy Bronze is often mentioned in, in the same breath as all the top players in the world, quite rightly. I thought it was very interesting that she almost led the praise for the new format of the Champions League, which is going to come into operation in 2021. Can you explain that format? For the listeners, <laughs> oh and my viewers. god, really?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: in simple terms. It, yes. And, and, and is it a good thing?
4: Yeah, is, I mean, in my view, it's a good thing. Again, I wrote a piece probably a month or two ago about the Champions League and how, you know, we see far too many one sided uh, results until you get probably until the quarter final stage. And. And by then, I think teams of, you know, like Leon pretty much know that they're, they're on such a high after such big wins that it's very difficult to stop them. Essentially, what we're going to see now is we're going to see um, a group stage brought in at the last 16. There are various ways that teams can reach that last 16. If you are in the top three coefficient standings uh, going into that competition, you essentially get a bye straight through to that last 16. There are going to be extra places available for countries in the top six coefficient positions, I think, as well. So, Uh, the women's super league at the moment is in that top six so they would get an extra spot in so they'd have have three they'd have three spots exactly so i think that's what we want we want to see more teams from the bigger leagues going in i know it's going to be difficult there is a flip side to this and that is those teams from the smaller countries that maybe don't have the financial backing if they get through to that last 16 stage they have to play six matches three home three away it's gonna be a big financial burden on them, so UEFA are gonna to have to find a way to counter that. But I was at an event recently and, and Leon's Jennifer Marijan was was there, the German international, and she said that, you know, Leon going into those competitions into the early rounds and they're winning eight nil against teams. And she said it's not fun. Going into a, a group stage in the last sixteen means Leon should in theory have a few competitive matches in that stage before they go through to the quarterfinals. So the whole point of it is is to make it more competitive, to get bigger teams in there, and also they're going to centralise the broadcast rights as well. At the moment, until the latter stages of the competition, the clubs are responsible for their own kind of broadcasting. It will now mean everything sits centrally, come back to what we were talking about, visibility and accessibility. It should be that the Women's Champions League from 2021 is more visible and people won't have such a struggle to actually watch it.
1: So you've got basically the best teams hopefully playing against the best more often.
2: Yeah, definitely. Emma Hayes said it at the <coughs> moment, it's easier to qualify for... It's harder to qualify for the Champions League than than it is to get to the semi-finals of the Champions League. I mean, that sort of says it all. We want a more competitive con, uh, competition. The fact that it's just <coughs> so easy to walk through to the semi-finals at this stage just isn't good enough anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think this might be the year, the, or 2020 might be the year where someone really challenges Lille?
3: I'm probably not the best one to answer that question. (laughs) I
2: don't know. I think Arsenal could give them a good run, but the problem is is Arsenal's squad is quite small, and I think their focus is going to be on the league and retaining the league. Especially when the third place in the Champions League doesn't come until 2021, mm. so they, they they need to be top two.
4: Wolfsburg always are the team that yeah. seem to give Leon the biggest challenge, although they haven't been able to kind of overcome them over the last few years, of years. But yeah. they they're just it's just, just a, yeah, until, they, it's just the depth the depth yeah. that that Leon have. There are internationals that can't even get on their bench at the moment, mm. and as Susie said, Arsenal's is maybe a little bit light. There's a couple of games recently where they've had maybe players that from their academy that have, have had to sit on the bench because mm. they've got injuries. And and Leon never seemed to have that problem. Barcelona showed again last year that they were very good, obviously got to the final. But I think they're probably one or two shy at the moment. I think Leon is still the favourite. Uh,
2: the thing with Leon is they've got, they <coughs> find it so, so easy in the league that the champions league is their focus that's what dominates all their thinking and it means that they're not kind of distracted or worn out by grueling league competition in the same way that Arsenal or Barcelona or something even I mean, Barcelona a little bit different probably not quite as to the same extent as uh, as Arsenal get competitively in the league here but they're still a little bit more of competitive edge than than in France so, yeah, it's sort of, that's, that's the biggest issue at the moment is that Lyon, you know, focus on it 100%, can sacrifice players in, um, to the bench in games around it and things like that if they need to, but they don't really need to do that.
1: But what will get inside the brain of the guys who control the money at the biggest clubs is that idea of the Champions League, you know, be, moving up the, up the pathway so that he's actually almost the equivalent of the male Champions League in terms of prestige and everything else is a club like Manchester United Katie and I'm not thinking immediately but maybe in the next two to three years that sort of club who would who would basically target success in Europe
3: I think so, yeah, and I think Casey Stoney's admitted as much that it would be her finest achievement as as coach if she could win the Champions League with Manchester United. So I think that they're kind of one of the clubs that are pointing towards that and I think if you see them two or three years down the line further on the journey, they're going to be right up there competing with the Cities, the Chelsea's, the Arsenal's. And I think it's just sort of changing where the Champions League sits and are conscious because, to be honest, it's probably not... In, in, from us as a media point of view as highly respected or highly regarded it should be just purely because those early rounds as Kieran said that the scorelines are sort of lopsided and as well it's very very difficult because there's no centralised broadcasting thing until the semi-finals the finals to, to give it the publicity and the attention and to get any kind of footage or highlights for it so I think we're seeing centralised broadcasting rights for the first time is as big as having more teams and having the group stage and stuff because you're just seeing that more publicity and focus and tension and con- consistent coverage that it deserves to really become one of the big competitions because at the moment we probably pay more attention to mm. the latter rounds of the League Cup and the, the FA Cup than we do the Champions League. Mm. Oh, the early rounds? The early rounds of the Champions League, yeah. Are, yeah.
4: yeah. Mm.
2: No, the, another big thing is the, uh, the splitting of the men's and the women's finals as well I think has been a really, really good thing, Mm -hmm. because... Last year was the first. Well, this last year, last season. This year was the first year that they've hosted the women's final in a different, different country and different city to the men's. Uh, whereas before that, it kind of got a little bit subsumed by the the men's final. Like the women's would be played on the Friday night or whatever the night before <coughs> two, two nights before, and it just got completely swamped. Um, and there was not you know limited kind of advertising of the the women's Champions League final. It was a kind of yeah the the Little warm up game Mm -hmm. uh, to the the big one, um, and would hope to draw a few fans off the back of it. Whereas this year, it was given its own space in um, Budapest. Got a really good crowd, a really good vibe. There were it was advertising around the city. There was a bit of hype to it. It felt like a special event. Whereas kind of previous years, it hadn't really felt like it existed much. Um, So that makes a big difference. I think UEFA that then broadening out the uh, rights and things like that and separating them off too is a big big step forward
1: well the champions league is where logically you get big personalities created and since the idea of this podcast is just to look forward just want to try and get your thoughts on young players to watch in the next year or so i'll kick it off uh, and it's not not a a, well, it's not a brave choice, let's put it like this, Lauren James of, of, of Manchester United, who you know, I think is pretty special. If you have to look at breakthrough players next season, who would you pick?
3: I don't know if breakthrough's the right term, but I think there's a lot of young players in that menu. You know, it's got Lauren James, when you mentioned, Leah Galton, another. I think for me, it will not necessarily be a breakthrough, given she has been an ever-present for City or as close to an ever-present as she can be in a squad mm. with Karen Barzi, But A Roebuck, the City goalkeeper, is kind of one to watch next season. Because I think if she can get into a position where... She is pushing to be the first choice keeper for Team GB or the first choice keeper ahead of Euro 2021. I think next season is going to be a really big season in deciding that and determining where she sits in the England pecking order amidst Mary Erbs, Karen Bardsley, Carly Telford for the next few seasons.
4: Okay, Kieran, any thoughts? I'm going to go a bit left field and it's maybe something we won't see a huge amount of next year, but hopefully we'll hear a lot about, and that's Alicia Russo out at the University of North Carolina. She's got one more year there. She had a really good year this year after breaking her leg towards the end of last year. Helped her side through to the US College Cup final where they lost on penalties to Stanford University, but she's exciting, Uh, plays as a a striker, and and I think that England down the the middle uh, as centre-forward, I think they're a little bit light, Uh, and I think think Alicia could potentially be that player that that maybe breaks into the England squad next year she's got as I say got one more year in the US so she's not going to be not be coming over here anytime soon but she can if she wants to enter the NWSL draft which takes place next month you don't now have to finish university before you had to go through the whole university system before you could enter the draft there are players now that can that can opt to enter into the draft sooner if they wish to I don't know what Alicia's plans are but I think she's definitely one to keep an eye on next year yeah so is it anyone else?
2: I think Lauren James is a really good pick, a uh, fantastic player, like one of the most technically gifted players I think I've seen, particularly at her age. But I'm gonna go not left field um and put my Arsenal hat on and say uh, Leah Williamson, because although she probably stayed to claim for being the best defender in the league last season, she's only really just got her chance of England in these past few friendlies and has immediately kind of sort of played her way onto that team sheet. And I think she's going to be, I I think she'll be future England captain one day and is going to cement herself in the team for a very, very, very long time. Lauren Hemp as well at C She's had uh, uh, difficulty with injuries, but has been playing really, really well the past few weeks.
1: Well, Lauren James is very young, only 18, but very talented. She'll be the franchise player Manchester United need and expect. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writer's Podcast.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.